0: and you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash slash film. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a mini water cooler episode and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I am a senior writer at slashfilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior writer and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, Chris, let's jump right into what we've been doing, not much of anything really. Uh, what we've been reading. I read something recently. I read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Have you ever read this book by any chance?
1: No, I'm I'm aware of it. I saw the uh, <laughs> the movie with Martin Freeman. I feel like no one remembers that movie, <laughs> but I had yeah, I definitely saw that movie, but I haven't, I haven't read the book, even though I I hear it's good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I remember being very underwhelmed by that movie. I feel like that was the sort of general reaction to, (laughs) to that film. Uh, I'm curious to go back and watch it now though, because after reading this book, which I enjoyed, but is like super, super dry. um, I I just, I wonder if the action will play better. So an example, uh, Chris, that I, I think might, paint the picture of how dry this book is um one character is is from earth and he gets whisked away onto this like alien adventure basically like uh hitchhiking through the galaxy as the, the book would would sort of indicate or that the title would sort of indicate and the earth gets like uh wiped out because it's gonna basically it's in the way because they're building like an intergalactic freeway uh and nobody really cares about the planet earth it just sort of gets destroyed like alderaan and star wars or something and this this one human remaining uh gets you know bounced around the galaxy on this different adventure and and at, at a certain point the book shifts perspective to a character who lives, you know, 500 million light years away or some crazy number and uh he's like in a speedboat going around uh this planet that has a lot of water on it but a few different islands and the the narrator of the book is is explaining like or the author of the book i guess is like explaining okay one of these islands uh it it happens to be named France but that's just a coincidence because that has nothing to do with uh, with the planet earth and, and the country of France. And like, that's it. That's the joke. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's what we're doing here. Uh, the the story is really wild. It's a very short book though. So I appreciated that. It's like the equivalent to me of like a 90 minute movie, like, all right, in and out, you know, tells its story pretty well. Um, I will say that the book just absolutely ends like they're not even like on a cliffhanger. It, it it wraps up the main conflict and then just Ends. <laughs> and like, oh, I didn't realize that this was going to be one of those books where it just literally leads right into a sequel. So I have no idea. I don't think I'm going to get around to ever reading the sequel. But uh, yeah, you know, a fun little sci fi book if you're interested in that kind of thing. So uh, let's go to what we've been watching, Chris, and I'm going to have you go first. Cause I've just been talking a lot. So what have you been watching recently?
1: Uh, sure. So I just saw last night, actually the many saints of Newark. Uh, my review is up on slash today. Uh, that is of course the, the Sopranos prequel movie. And, um, uh, I won't say too much cause I want people to go read my review, but I, I really liked it. Um, I'm a I'm a fan of the Sopranos. I will say, if you haven't like watched the Sopranos, you can still see the movie. But I do think watching the Sopranos makes the movie richer in the way that you can you you interpret things differently if you have an, a knowledge of what happens on the mm-hmm. show. But uh, the movie is really good. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, it's very much like the show. It's very much a deconstruction of you know the the mob the mafia genre subgenre if you will like you know a, a lot of times when people make movies about the mafia uh they get accused often erroneously i think of of glamorizing uh, that lifestyle like Martin Scorsese gets that a lot like you're glamorizing the mobsters and i don't think he's doing that at all but i do think if you do think that uh, the you know, the sh- both the show this Brandos and this movie, The Many Sins of Newark, is kind of like a reaction to that because it's very much about portraying the lives these characters live as just kind of miserable. like yeah, they're they're powerful mobsters and they're making crazy amounts of money doing illegal stuff. but they're also just living these really like shitty like lives in Newark. Like Newark is a terrible place. No one like, no one wants to be in Newark. And um, I really appreciated that. How like, it's like, yeah, they're mobsters. Yeah. You know, they're, they're powerful in theory, but you also get the sense that if these guys like, gotten their cars and drove a few blocks away from their neighborhoods they would be absolutely like nobodies no would be like <laughs> no would be like oh there's that mobster they just be like there's some random guy i don't give a shit who that is mm-hmm. and you know it's very much about you know not about that but that's very much like baked into the, the movie about how these guys you know they think they're big shots they think they're they're really cool mobsters but they're really just Dumb losers who, you know, they're really just, you know, they're just they're idiots, basically. And um, I, I thought that was a really, you know, interesting to keep that going in the movie because, you know, that that fits really well with the show, because the show, for the most part, is is set in the 21st century. And that felt like it was a reaction to everything that came before it, like all the mob, all the mob entertainment that came before Uh, That 21st century show, the show was reflecting on it. Now this movie, which is set in the the 60s and the 70s, it's sort of like taking things a step further and saying like, not only are, you know, modern day mobsters pathetic, but mobsters of, you know, the quote unquote good old days Mm. are just as pathetic and stupid as, as they're. Their modern day counterpoint parts.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So it's, it's like, yeah, not uh, it's, it's like an anti nostalgia movie almost.
1: Yeah. It's just like a Neo, it's like a Neo mob film, if you will. Like, yeah. Uh,
0: so what did you think about the performances? I know there are like a ton of great people in this movie.
1: Yeah. I, I liked them mostly across the board. um uh, there's a lot of people I like in this. Um, uh, Alessandro Navallo. I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong. He's been in a lot of things, but this is like the first real, like, major role he's had and he's really good in this he plays um a character named dickie moltisanti who is tony sopranos they call him his uncle but they're not really related he's more like a mentor figure and the movie is really about him even though like the marketing is playing up the whole tony soprano angle it's really about this dickie moltisanti character and how how he th- you know he he does all this stuff where he, he tries to sort of wash away his sins by doing good things like he coaches a uh a little league team for blind kids. And he, he visits his <laughs> uncle in prison and, you know, he's a mentor to Tony. So he does these things where in, in his mind, he's like, Oh, these are good things. And he thinks they're going to co- sort of counterbalance all the really just terrible shit he does. And the movie's like about that too, about how this character, you know, he's like, I do good things. I'm not a bad guy, but you know, he really is just a terrible person. And, <laughs> and um, so he's great. Um, uh, Michael Gandolfini who is of course James Gandolfini's son he plays the younger Tony Soprano and that of course is the role that his father made famous and he is really good in this Uh, he's he's good to the point where it actually is kind of like unnerving because he for, for one thing he just really looks like his dad like he really looks like a younger version of his dad and he really does a great job of of nailing down the various mannerisms that his father had on the show and I can't even imagine what that must have been because I was reading interviews with him and he was saying like he, he was studying his father's performances. and I can't even imagine how like stressful that must be to like watch hours and hours of footage of your, your dead father and, yeah. and try and like get his mannerisms down to recreate his most famous role. Like I'm sure that wow. was not like just like an emotional level. I'm sure that was just like very draining, but. Um, You know, it it paid off because he does a great job in this. Yeah, the
0: only thing that I can think of that comes even remotely close to that is um, O'Shea Jackson Jr. playing... Uh, Ice Cube in yeah. straight out of Compton, but Ice Cube is still alive. So right, it's, it's yeah. like, a, there's a whole different twist in there. So uh, yeah. Chris, I found myself in this weird position uh, timing, uh, sort of in relation to the timing of this movie coming out where I just started watching the Sopranos. I'm, I think I'm seven episodes into season one. Uh, and I, I kind of want to watch this movie, but I, I I also just started this whole Sopranos project. And now I kind of want to like see that through all the way to the end. Cause Jumping into this prequel and then continuing on with the show just feels like a weird thing. I just watched an episode where there were flashbacks to Tony's childhood. And I was like, man, if I had already seen all of The Sopranos, I feel like now would be a really good time to watch this movie where it's sort of, you know, it, it, uh, it creates a little bit more of a um, chronology, you know. Um, but I, I think I'm probably just going to hold off and, and watch this thing yeah. after I finish the se- uh, the series.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just wrote a big piece about how, not big piece, but I wrote a piece about how you can see this movie if you haven't seen the show, but I really would recommend, especially if you started it waiting, because there are a few things, um, for one thing, like, there's there's one scene in the film that actually recreates a scene from the show, a flashback scene of when Tony was a kid, it just, it just redoes that scene, but with the actors from the movie, oh, and, for, interesting. and for another, and I'm, I'm trying to be as vague as possible here without giving me spoilers, but like, the fate of one of the characters in this movie is sort of like ambiguous and left up in the air in the show, Mm. but they give you a definitive answer of what actually happened to that character in this movie. So
0: man, that is really interesting, especially considering it's a prequel. So that's, (laughs) yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I
1: I would recommend I get, you know, at this point, yeah, if you hadn't started it yet and you were like, I'm not going to start for a while, I would say just watch the movie. But the fact that you've already started the show, It's definitely it will it'll definitely pay off more once you you finish the the show and then jump into the movie.
0: Okay, so yeah, hopefully, uh, Sopranos fans will be excited about this. It's coming to HBO Max, right? Like pretty soon, October first. Okay, October first. All right. Uh, So, what else have you been watching, Chris?
1: Uh, I finally saw Black Widow because I got sent the Blu Ray, and uh, it was it was fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I actually I really liked the opening scene of this movie. And I also really liked that they went to the trouble of making an actual opening credit scene because not just Marvel movies, but movies in general don't really have opening credit sequences anymore. And I always get a little thrill when when someone brings them back because they can be really fun if they're done really well. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean like, you know, text on a screen. I mean, like actual. Sequences, kind of like you know, like the the, the James Bond opening credits, or mm-hmm. uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo has a great opening credit, the Fincher version. So I, I always like when films do that. So I really liked that this had that. So that that opening scene, coupled with the opening credit sequence, had me like really excited. I was like, oh man, is this going to be a good movie? And then it just like shits the bed, and <laughs> it, it immediately descends into that really crappy Marvel action where every like the camera is just really too close because they're trying to cover up the fact that everyone is using a stunt double and it just does not look great. Um, But you know, there were things to like about this. Uh, The accent work is atrocious across like everyone (laughs) is doing really bad accents in this movie. But uh, Florence Pugh is, is just delightful from beginning to end. Like, I feel like if she weren't in the movie, I would have just been like this, this sucks. I don't even want to watch it, Mm -hmm. but she, she really elevates everything just because she's such a good actress and she's really, Funny, and she you know she does really good comic timing with the the lines they give her here. Like even the lines themselves aren't that funny, but the way she delivers them, it it really sells the humor. So yeah, so yeah that that's my that's my take on Black Widow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean having gone some time now uh, between my my only viewing of the movie and thinking about it now, I I really just remember. Um, fondly the family dynamic, like that scene around the dinner table um, that, that kind of stands out as really the only, I guess the the opening was good too. So yeah, those two scenes kind of stand out as like the only really um, scenes that are almost worthwhile in that whole movie. Like the rest of it is just, like her flying through the sky with the with the falling hovercraft and everything uh, at the end it just awful. Like, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't even look good. Like it just yeah. does such a disservice to that character. Like people have been waiting so long for a Black Widow movie and there's so much potential there. Scarlett Johansson is great and like you know the the cast is great. There's so much potential and and like that was what they chose to do with the third act of that movie. I don't know. I was I was pretty disappointed with that. But um, there are moments in it that that sort of stick with me. So Hopefully yeah. you'll have that experience as well. But.
1: I mean, yeah, it's not like the worst Marvel movie or anything. It's just like, it was sort of like, Oh, is that it after all this time? Like, yeah. oh, is, that, is that what we waited for? Great. Yeah. Uh,
0: so now I'm really curious to hear what you think about Cruella and if you liked it more or less than Black Widow. Oh man. All right.
1: So uh, a lot of people, and I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but a lot of our, uh, my, you know, our good friends on, on the, the slash film staff and the people who appear on this very podcast uh, told me, this is a good movie. Don't, you know, before Cruella came out, I was like, this looks really stupid. And the trailers looked really dumb and everything about it looked dumb to me. And I kept hearing again and again, you know what? That was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. So I finally sat down and watched this because it's it's streaming for free now on Disney+. Plus. You don't have to pay the premium thing. And I can safely say, people who told me this was good are lying through their teeth. <laughs> You know, the costumes look great. That, and that's one thing. And, you know, co- you know, clothing and costumes play a big part in the movie. So I could understand people highlighting that. But visually, this is just an ugly, like murky movie where, like, there are multiple scenes, like, set at night outside where I could not see what the hell was happening. I was like, what? <laughs> like, how, who lit this? This looks awful. And then... <laughs> the the story is just really stupid there's there's this really there's stuff in here we do not need where it's like ah her name isn't actually cruella it's estella like ah, i don't <laughs> care just shut up <laughs> i just ah oh, just it was it just felt really stupid to me from the beginning it was too long for like it, it's i think it's over 2 hours but it seriously felt like like a 4 hour movie and there's no reason for this movie to be as long as it is it could have been like 90 minutes everyone is, is trying, um, uh, Paul Walter Hauser, He's fun as one of the the goons. Emma Stone is okay. I guess, even though I don't think her accent was really that convincing. Um, Emma Thompson is always good. I'm sure she got a good paycheck for that for good. So good for her, but man, I just did not care for this. And you know, other thing people kept talking about was the music and like, who cares? Like, uh, I, I feel like people don't understand what makes a good needle drop in a movie. Like You, you, you mm. can just like throw a bunch of songs into your soundtrack and be like, "Here you are. Like they need to have like some <laughs> sort of like context. They need that. The scene needs to sort of reflect the song. Like Martin Scorsese is the best, exam- best like working director right now who knows how to cut popular, you know, pop music to scenes. And everyone who's doing it, now is is basically ripping him off. You know, James Gunn ripping him off, Quentin Tarantino ripping him off, and that's fine. You know, the, you know you should steal from the masters, but if you're going to steal that, you should at least understand what you're doing. And to this, to me, it just felt like uh, what was his name, Craig Gillespie, the director. He just like went on Spotify, looked up 60s playlist, and just ported that <laughs> over to the movie without like thinking about it. And I was just like. This is just cheap yeah. <laughs> nonsense. So yeah. I was
0: distracted by how many like super big mega popular songs just, it was relentless. It just felt like one after the other. Yeah. And it was, it really felt like what you're saying, just like a famous song for famous songs sake. And it, it didn't really, I, I wonder what you think the, the key is to like a Scorsese needle drop. Chris, is it, is it um, is it the reflection of the lyrics with what's happening on screen? Or is it more just like a mood kind of thing? Cause sometimes
1: I think, it, I think it's both of those things. Okay, Cause, Cause like a lot of times he'll use, he'll use like parts of songs that don't include the lyrics. Like Goodfellas mm. is most famous where he has um Layla in there, which he, he cuts out anything. He cuts out all the lyrics and just has like the outro, which is, you know, the, the music at the end. And so it, it, it's I, I, I really think it's just all about it's really all in the editing, honestly. So maybe we should credit this more to Thelma Schumacher than than um Lawrence Corsese, since she's his editor. But uh, it's really on how you cut the scene. And I feel like that is a problem here because the scenes in Cruella aren't really cut to match the music. The songs are just, it's basically just sounds like someone put a playlist on in the background of the scenes without actually considering the tempo of the scene and how Mm. the song carries the scene. And those are the things that, you know, people who know what they're doing, like Martha Scorsese, are always worrying about and always taking care to, to make sure, you know, what is unfolding, you know, reflects. And I'm not saying it needs to be like, the scene needs to be scored to the music like a musical, but there needs to be some sort of connection in terms of, how things are flowing. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't get that at all from the, the approximately 7,000 drops (laughs) in this movie.
0: Yeah, uh, man. I just, I thinking back to this film, the one thing that really stands out in my mind is um, I I guess this is a spoiler uh, for Cruella. So if you have not seen the movie and you really still care about it for some reason, as Chris mentioned, it's streaming for free on Disney plus right now. So uh just skip ahead you can watch it maybe and come back although i would not recommend that uh, but there's a moment at the end chris where i think she goes over the edge of the cliff and there's like a sort of a makeshift parachute situation if i recall correctly and it yes. reminded me of die another day like the opening of the pierce brosnan james bond film where he is like surfing on a like a tidal wave kind of thing like a tsunami wave yes. and it just looks awful so terrible like <laughs> i cannot imagine how the the rest of this movie you know the aesthetics of it like you were saying the fashion of it is is pretty cool and like the the look of the the production design all the other elements that you would need uh, you know, that's not like an offensive part of this movie to me. But that moment I was like, oh my God, like I genuinely cannot believe that somebody let this pass, you know, a quality control session or whatever and, and put that into a final cut. Yeah.
1: And yeah, everything, oh, I'm just so annoyed with this movie. <laughs> it, it, it also like the whole film felt like it was two different scripts like cobbled together. Cause like stuff that happens here doesn't, really makes sense like there's this entire middle section of the movie where Cruella is like suddenly evil and then at the end they're like never mind she you know she was just confused or something like yeah. what the hell is that like it felt <laughs> it felt like there was like an early draft where they fully committed to her being a villain which is what she is in you know the Disney movie the one on mm-hmm. Dalmatians and someone somewhere was like no we can't have her we need to make her nice because people yeah. won't like it so they like they quickly just retcon everything that just happened and she's just like oh I was I wasn't thinking clearly I'm sorry I did all this evil
0: stuff she can't go full evil yet chris because yeah. there still has to be a cruella 2 oh which so. they
1: are making which <sighs> jesus christ I'm, I'm gonna jump off a cliff soon just like cruella <laughs> i'm gonna do it without the parachute
0: <laughs> oh man all right so uh let's talk a little bit about what i've been watching i saw nightmare alley the 1947 uh, adaptation of the book um, guillermo del toro is making uh, his own adaptation that's going to come out I think later this year. Have you seen the original Nightmare Alley, Chris?
1: No, I got um I have the the recent Criterion release. I just haven't
0: watched it yet, but
1: I'm I'm definitely going to watch it before I see the Del Toro movie.
0: Yeah, I would definitely recommend it. It's a a pretty cool movie. Um it I don't want to say too much about it. So just in very, very broad strokes, it's about this guy who is like a uh, carnival barker, like a little bit of a huckster who works at this traveling carnival. And he uh, has it in his eyes that he's going to become like this big deal. And he uses these mentalism tricks and and sort of goes off into the big city, tries to strike out on his own and um, become like this rich and famous guy. And then things take a, a pretty... Uh, drastic turn from there and i'm i'm so interested in what del toro is going to do with this material because uh tyrone power started this movie from 1947 and he was known for like swashbuckling uh sort of romantic roles and he this is a much much darker character that's in the lead. And Bradley Cooper is playing the character that, that yeah. Power played. Um, and I'm I'm very excited to see what Cooper does because he has been, you know, a relatively like clear cut uh, or clean cut rather, um, you know, sort of a heroic figure uh, a lot of times on screen. I mean, he, he's had some complexity to him here and there, but this is much darker. And, and I'm really excited to see specifically what Del Toro does because coming off of, shape of water which was the last movie that he made which won an oscar and and is this big swooning you know sort of uh romance and it's like a throwback to the glory days of cinema and it's it's um it's a weird movie it's a woman who falls in love with a fish man but there's also like a (laughs) a romantic core at the at the heart of that and a um an optimism that uh you see throughout some of del toro's work and there is Really, not much optimism to be had in the story of Nightmare Alley, at least the 1947 version. So, uh, as a almost like a not a corrective, but an alternative to The Shape of Water, um, those two movies back to back tonally. I'm I'm really really curious to see what Del Toro does. So, uh, I would recommend watching this movie if you can. I I mean, I don't. The criterion version that you mentioned uh Chris is I'm sure the ideal way to watch this if you for some reason can't find can't get your hands on that. I think there is a version streaming on YouTube right now, just like somebody uploaded the whole thing and maybe like the uh the rights have have uh transpired or whatever um because it, it's been up for a long long time so uh yeah, you could find it there if you're interested, but yeah, Chris, once you watch the original. Uh, Nightmare Alley, I want to I want to know what you think about that, so maybe you can talk about that on, a, on an upcoming episode or something. But. Yeah,
1: I'm very curious to check it out. I'm, I might read the book, too, but who
0: knows? Yeah, yeah. The, I was reading the Wikipedia page about the book, and it sounds like there's some, some yeah. significant differences. Uh, I, I remember
1: when this got in, the, the Del Toro version got announced, a lot of people were saying, like, this, the Tyra Power version is much different than the book, and mm-hmm. Del Toro's version yeah. is going to be closer to the book so i'm very curious about that
0: yeah Uh, i also watched the fog for the first time the john carpenter movie from 1980 i assume you've seen this you're a big carpenter fan
1: oh absolutely it's one of my my favorite carpenter movies
0: okay i was gonna say i I feel like this movie does not really have much of a reputation but i really enjoyed it i thought it was kind of a cool concept like this fog rolls into a, a northern california town on the 100th anniversary of the town where this this uh you know sort of um Uh, like a dastardly event happened uh, hundreds of years ago or a hundred years ago rather, where like the the founders of the town ended up deliberately sinking this ship and uh, it it sort of created uh, these like pirates who roll in on the fog and, and sort of um, try to take revenge for what happened to them a hundred years before. And obviously like there's all these different people in the town now, um, but it's really just sort of like a slice of life, little, Cool, like small-scale horror movie with like a lot of practical effects, practical fog. Uh, I know they did a remake of this. I've never seen it. Have you seen the remake? First? I have. It's awful. It's okay. so bad.
1: Don't even, <laughs> don't even like bother. It's so
0: bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tom Atkins is in this. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, coming back after working with Carpenter on Halloween. Um, it's cool because Jamie Lee Curtis gets to work with her own mom, uh, Janet Lee, in this. Uh, Hal Holbrook has a, a nice little role as uh, as a priest. In this movie, and Adrian Barbeau, who I think was married to Carpenter at the time, or maybe right around this time, um, is the the star of the movie. And I thought she she did a great job. I've not really seen her in a ton of stuff, um, but I, I just I was very impressed by this movie. And which is, I, I think, one of the sort of throwaway movies in Carpenter's filmography. If you talk to people in in terms of like how he is perceived in in the mainstream, I guess it's just because he has so many great, great, great movies that films like the fog which are really really good uh, but maybe not quite like classics on the level of halloween or the thing or something just kind of fall through the cracks a little bit why do you think that the fog is not spoken about in the same terms as some of those other films
1: you know i don't know i mean it was you know it came on the heels of halloween and halloween was like you know the big deal and uh the fog is a much different movie it's it's you know, it has like, you know, some slasher elements in it, but the fog is really like, you know, an old fashioned ghost story. And I don't know if that resonates with as many people as, you know, Michael Myers walking around mm-hmm. killing people, but mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for that stuff, you know, ghost pirates and- Yeah. Small small seaside towns, curses. Give me that shit. I love that shit.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, my biggest takeaway from this was there absolutely need to be more pirate films. Absolutely. Give me more. In 2021, give us, yeah, give us more pirate stuff. Um, All right. So then I just did uh, one other sort of like, uh, I think this was a double feature that my wife and I pulled where we watched Shakespeare in Love, which I had never seen. And then Romeo plus Juliet, the uh, the 1996 movie uh, directed by- Directed by Baz Luhrmann. Because Shakespeare in Love, uh, for those who don't know, won Best Picture in 1998, and it's this sort of romantic romantic drama, I guess, about um, Shakespeare coming up with the story for Romeo and Juliet. And uh, there's this, it's like a a meta story where it's like the story is about him or the the movie is about him uh, coming up with the story. And then he ends up acting out the role of Romeo on stage opposite um, a character played by Gwyneth Paltrow. And two of them have a romance and a lot of the relationships uh, and, and sort of um, interactions between characters inform what happens in Romeo and Juliet and then inform uh what shakespeare would later write uh in 12th night so there's a lot of like um i kind of i wrote about this in a a version of the uh, edition of the daily stream on slash.com and and mentioned that it's kind of like the the marvel cinematic universe (laughs) kind of thing where it's like easter eggs all over the place if you're like a big shakespeare head (laughs) like this is the movie to watch so uh i'd never seen this but i i really ended up enjoying it quite a bit um I, i think there was like a lot of uh i don't know outcry might be the wrong word but um a lot of kerfuffle when this movie won best picture because saving private Ryan was up that year. And that was maybe supposed to quote unquote, supposed to win uh best picture. But um, I guess separated from all of the, whatever ginned up controversy there may have been 20 plus years ago. Um, this movie, I think stands on its own really, really well. And it's, it's uh, Joseph Fines is in it. And uh, it's really strange to think that he is like the, um, one of the commanders in the handmaid's tale playing like this, truly despicable character when he's like this, you know, hot young Shakespeare who fucks kind of guy in, in this movie. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow was really, really great in this too. And and the the supporting actors are super entertaining. Like Jeffrey Rush is in this. Uh, ben Affleck has a small role. Um, and uh, Tom Wilkinson, I thought was like a real standout. So I don't know. Have you seen this movie, Chris, by any chance? Yes,
1: I, I love this movie. You know, there like you said, there is a lot of animosity around this movie because – uh, for one thing, it was a, a Harvey Weinstein production, and Harvey Weinstein, um, in addition to being a terrible human being, uh, he did a lot of, like, shady shit around Oscar times, to, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to basically sort of, like, all but bribe people to vote for his movies, and that was sort of, like, the argument at the time, like, ah, uh, say Private Ryan should have won, and Shakespeare in Love only won, because Harvey Weinstein bribed the judges. And I don't know how true that is or not, and maybe it is true, but... I, I really like this movie. It's, it's funny. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's charming. And if you're like a Shakespeare nerd, which I am, you know, and I was when this came out, I was, I was even more to Shakespeare then than I am now. Uh, it was, it's just a lot of fun to like see all those references and, and be like, I know what that's from. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a really like romantic movie. Like the yeah. chemist the chemistry between um, Joseph Fiennes and Gwyneth Paltrow is really good. Like, you buy into them being a couple,
0: and yeah, we talk about that all the time. I feel like on this podcast, especially like the uh, Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt yes. in, in uh, Jungle Cruise, it's like, it, come on, you're not even trying to have like romantic chemistry here. But watch something, watching something like this, it's like, man, this screen just feels like it's sizzling because you you can tell that these people. I don't know if they, I'm not uh, trying to to imply that like the only way that that can happen is if like a real relationship forms on the set of a movie or whatever that, right. but these people might just be like really good at acting. That yeah. that could be a thing. Uh, but there's something about the way that um, charisma and, and uh, yeah, that chemistry just like f- burns up the screen in this movie that is r- super effective.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're pro Shakespeare in love because over the years people have only become even more bitter about that movie. And I really think it's a, a legitimately great movie. So
0: yeah, it's streaming on HBO Max right now. I definitely recommend checking it out if you're interested. Uh, I also, yeah, like I mentioned, watched Romeo plus Juliet, which I had not seen probably since the late '90s. Um, and I, you know, I was in that period, like right around Titanic, where I just did not really care very much about Leonardo DiCaprio. It was like all the girls in my school were obsessed with him, so I was kind of like, screw that guy, whatever, <laughs> you know. Like, um, so I, I remember like flashes and little snippets from my first viewing but um especially coming off the heels of Shakespeare and Love when you know the the ins and outs of Romeo and Juliet are uh are fictionalized in such an entertaining way to watch this movie which like really takes that story and uh, transplants the setting to um I I guess they call it Verona Beach which is kind of like supposed to be Venice Beach in California um It's so stylish. The opening, I don't know if I've ever seen an opening to a movie as totally insane as this one. I cannot imagine being, you know, anyone over the age of, let's say, 35 and going in to watch this film, like thinking, oh, there's a new Shakespeare adaptation and just like not, maybe not seeing a trailer or something and sitting down and watching this and just being completely bombarded by Baz Luhrmann's just Frenetic. Basically, <laughs> it's like a
1: it's like a trailer for the movie opens yeah. the movie. Like you get all these shots from the film, and they're like title card. It's so fucking goofy. Oh
0: my god, it, it is insane! It opens with like this gas station fight. That <laughs> it is it is wild. So uh, yeah, I mean overall, I think I ended up enjoying it. Like uh, Pete Postle, weight I'm not uh, Postlethwait. Yeah, yeah weight Yes, uh, he was really great, and I re- I found myself. Reminded of, uh, I mean, obviously this came out in 1996, so well before, but he, uh, one of his last roles or maybe his last role was as a gangster in the town who ran like a flower shop and, and came in contact with Ben Affleck's character. And he plays the apothecary in this movie uh, or no the the priest excuse me yes um so the priest in this movie and he runs a flower shop and i it was just like uh sort of taken aback by the uh, the visual similarities <laughs> yeah. there um but yeah another great supporting cast i mean harold Perrineau kills it in this movie, uh, John Leguizamo, Paul Sorvino, um, Brian Dennehy is in it for like a split second, but really the movie belongs to DiCaprio and Claire Danes. And both of them I thought are so young, uh, but both do a really, really great job. So if you can get past some of the, the stylistic stuff, which is like admittedly incredibly in your face and feels super MTV, you know, circa 1996, um, which is a, an aesthetic that doesn't necessarily hold up or is not often reflected in modern day media. Uh, if you can sort of lean into that or, or get past that, whatever way you can, you can deal with it. I think there's a lot to like about this movie. So what are your thoughts on Romeo plus Juliet? Chris? Man.
1: So when this came out, it was like the coolest goddamn thing. And like, <laughs> just like ev- the way everyone was dressed and, and how they all had like guns instead of swords. And look, I, I should, you know, I am not a gun nut. I am all for gun control. There are too many guns in this country. Also guns look really cool in movies when they're shot like this. So the fact that everyone's like, got like a gun hanging off their belts or like uh, on their side arms and stuff like that. It was like, that is so fucking cool. And everyone's smoking (laughs) cigarettes and there's neon everywhere. Um, But I actually recently revisited this too. And even though I, you know, the movie is, is like burned into my brain from seeing it as a, as a teen when it came out. Um, I was like, this is, I can't believe how insane this movie is for like a, (laughs) like a mainstream movie, like watching, like watching it. I was like, how the hell did this ever get released? Like by a studio? Because it's so fucking bonkers. It's like, it never lets up. It's just like constantly hitting you over the head. And like, I don't think everything works here. I think, um, Pete Postlewaite is for some reason, he's the only actor who understands what iambic pentameter is, yes. which is what Romeo and Juliet is written in. And he's the only one who, <laughs> for some reason. One, he's the only one who knows how to deliver it. And two, apparently Baz Luhrmann never for a second was like, Oh, none of my actors are delivering this, this dialogue. Right. right. Because no one else here knows how to read the, the Shakespeare dialogue except him. And I found that like really weird. That's not to say like the acting is bad. Cause like you mentioned, Harold Pintero is so good in this. John Languizamo is having a really good time. Um, but for some reason, no one in this movie understands what Iambic Pentameter is and how to deliver lines in that. So I found that really weirdly distracting, but it's so stylish. It's so in your face. Paul Rudd shows up. Yes. I, there's, just so, <laughs> there's just so much to really love about this movie. And like, even if like you watch it and you're like, a purist and you're like, this is an abomination to Shakespeare. You have to admit it's got style, man. And I would, I would kill for more mainstream Hollywood movies with this much style. Like, yeah,
0: that's what I, that's what, that was my biggest takeaway. It was just like, I wish more stuff that is outside of franchise material would have the, the freedom to be able to do something as wild as this, because nowadays you see something like, um, I don't know, like, like Paradise Hills is the thing that, that comes to mind immediately, which is a very, very small movie that not a lot of people watch, but it had this incredible uh, visual palette and, and look to it. And the production design was insane. And just that movie had such a tiny budget that they could get away with it. And the studio or backers or whatever, didn't really think it was that much of a risk, but like all the middle ground stuff, this movie was like, it costs like around $15 million. And that was very like middle of the road for Hollywood in the mid nineties. And there were tons of movies that were in that uh sort of budget range that got released all the time. And now that part is the, the sort of aspect of Hollywood that feels uh almost lost today. And I just, yeah, I'm right there with you. I really wish that more movies would, have the freedom to be able to do, to take swings like this. Cause I mean like the canted camera angles and like the, all the vehicles look like, um, like boxy convertibles that have had the, the tops completely shorn off of them, (laughs) like they're sheep or something. Like I, I was just like thinking and, and the editing is so fast. I'm just, I'm sitting there like, uh, my mouth was agape during that, especially during that opening sequence of the gas station. Like just thinking about the the production team and like everybody coming together, all the production assistants and everybody filming on the day being like, wait a second, you want us to do what you want us <laughs> to create this set to look like that? Are you serious? And just, it is so much of a, like an auteur movie. Um, Man, it, it is it is definitely like a calling card movie. And I, I didn't really care for Moulin Rouge, which I talked about, and that's, I guess, like a controversial opinion that I have. Um, that came out a couple, a few years after this. But man, I, I really ended up liking this one a lot better. Um, I don't know if it's just the source material or what, but like the style, he, Baz Luhrmann, that's kind of his thing. It's like he hits you over the head with, with those yeah. stylistic choices. And I, I thought it worked way better here than it did in Moulin Rouge, but that's just me, so... Uh yeah any any closing thoughts Chris on uh Romeo plus Juliet? I feel no, like
1: it's just it's a lot of fun. And I missed I also missed that era when there was like this influx of um reimagined Shakespeare things cuz yeah. then we got the we got the the Hamlet with Ethan Hawke where he delivers the to be or not to be speech in a blockbuster video which I always thought was just friggin amazing Man, and I've
0: never <laughs> seen that one. Oh,
1: you should watch that. Bill Murray is in it. It's got like a crazy cast. Kyle MacLachlan is in it. Um then there was like the 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 teen-centric ones, like 10 Things I Hate About You, which was, you know, is Taming of the Shrew. There was just mm-hmm. this like weird period where
0: – Oh, yeah. Oh, the, the yeah, Othello. It was, like,
1: it was like, yeah, Othello, but with basketball. It's like, yeah, <laughs> there was just that weird period where everyone was like, we got to make really hip Shakespeare movies. And I, I kind of want that to come back. Let's bring that trend back. Really yeah. weird. Weird Shakespeare adaptations.
0: Oh man. Yeah. I would love that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess there's the a, a Shakespeare adaptation that's coming up soon, right? Like you're going to be able to see uh, what is it oh, called? Yeah. the tragedy of Macbeth. Yeah.
1: I'll be seeing that Friday. I don't know how weird that'll be, but I'm looking forward to it.
0: Okay. So that's Joel Cohen uh, sort of breaking out from the, the Cohen brothers, um, uh, naming convention or whatever and, and going solo for this one. So uh, I'm sure we'll have a bunch of coverage of that up on slashfilm.com. So stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics at peter at slash film.com. and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air don't forget to rate and review the show on apple podcasts tell your friends spread the word thank you all for listening and we will talk to you tomorrow